I want to just welcome the audience. Uh, some of you are, uh, are repeat uh, offenders um, and have been in these chats before, but we've made a practice at Sapir to ask at least some of our, uh, some of our writers to talk about the essays that they have uh, done for us. Um, and we've had really a, a very distinguished uh, uh, roster of people. Uh, I'm not sure if we've had anyone uh, more distinguished than uh, Andrew Roberts. Uh, I noticed when the Sapir invitation went out, it described you as one of Britain's most distinguished historians. This is false. You are one of the world's most distinguished historians. <laughs> and I have, I have some of the evidence. Um, this uh, masterpiece described by uh, the New York Times as the best single volume biography of Churchill um, appeared, I think, in 2018, 20, uh, at the end of 2018. You've written extensively about uh, Napoleon. Your most recent book is about George III, the last, uh, the last king of America. And um, am I allowed to say this? Are you, uh, you are working or at least considering a biography of? Disraeli. Of yes. Disraeli. Um, however, there, I think there's going to be a, a book in between that. I'm going to okay. be doing uh, a, 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 um, a book for next year, actually, which I don't want to talk about yet because I haven't signed the contract yet. And I'm very superstitious about that kind of okay. thing. Okay, so, so, so that's, why, that's why I was a little hesitant to that. Yeah, the big, the big book, though, the next sort of four years of my life after, after Christmas will be um, working on this extraordinary man, Disraeli, who, uh, who somehow, despite being Jewish, became the prime minister of the, of the largest empire the world's ever seen at a time when a lot of the conservatives and the upper classes um, were anti-Semitic, so it's a it's an extraordinary story. So we're going to get to your essay, but I just want to pause right there because, in a sense, it bears on exactly what we're what we're going to discuss. Which is, how was it that an, that a largely anti-Semitic British aristocracy in, in in an era that was far far less democratic than Britain is uh, uh, today? And I don't just mean uh, not having women voting. Um, how how were they able to overcome that particular bigotry and allow Disraeli to be next to Palmerston and 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 just a handful of other people the the great British Prime Minister of the nineteenth century the zenith of empire? Uh, it was largely because they needed him. It wasn't out of any um, any fondness for his background. Certainly, um, he through his own uh, brilliance and his wit and his um, his. Uh, capacity for uh, for political um, maneuvering uh, in one sense, but also his wonderful oratory in another, um, were able to, um, uh, to, he was able to persuade them that he was the only man who could, uh, as you say, take on Palmerston, but also Gladstone um, and, uh, and other liberals, and actually um, bring a, uh, a majority of the electorate over to the Conservatives. So it was a marriage of convenience at the beginning, but slowly, as he did well, and as he um, as he won um, the great general election of 1874, he actually um, became beloved by the Tory party, and, and uh, especially so after he died. It, it's, in that sense, there's an interesting parallel, I think, with Winston Churchill, who also became prime minister uh, over the objection uh, uh, of, of his own party, uh, uh, not least as a maverick, uh, as a maverick outsider, though obviously, 
you know, himself a descendant of, of, of British arist uh, aristocracy. But I want to get to this wonderful essay that you have done for our fifth issue of uh, Sapir, which is um, uh, beginning to uh, emerge on our website now, it's sapirjournal.org. Uh, uh, um, we will have uh, the physical edition fairly soon. Um, and it's what Britain can learn uh, from, uh, from Israel. And you begin your uh, essay by, by taking note of the degree of condescension and vitriol that populates kind of the upper circles of most of British intelligentsia, not all of it by, by, by any means, but much of British intelligentsia, much especially the British Foreign Office and uh, the, BB, uh, the BBC, which uh, if you lived in Israel would always find you tearing your, your, your hair out at the way in which they reported things. But start with the Foreign Office. Why has there been really since well before 1948, before, before independence, this longstanding animosity by the Foreign Office for a state project that is in many ways the child um, of, of a British for, uh, foreign minister, at least from, from a generation before. Well, that's exactly right, um, Brett. It does predate the creation of the State of Israel in May um, 1940. Eight. I think quite a lot of it goes back to the Arabism of the First World War, um, the, uh, the romance of the Lawrence of Arabia story. Um, if you talk to ambassadors today, they'll say, well, look, it's, um, it's nothing to do with anti-Semitism at all. It's all to do with the fact that there are 22 Arab countries and only one Jewish one. And uh, Britain's interests, therefore, are better served by um, essentially having good relations with the 22 countries rather than the one. Um, if you scrape into that a little bit more uh, carefully, and also point out, as I do to these ambassadors, that actually if Israel's able to, through the Abraham Accords, for example, have perfectly reasonable relations with some Arab, Arab countries, why on earth couldn't Britain uh, be a bit more um, positive about Israel? You'll find a um, a profound historical um, dislike. And as you say, actually more than dislike, really a condescension. This idea that it's a, it's a brand new country, it's only 70 years old, which means a lot. Actually, 70 years is a long time in the history of a nation, as Lord Salisbury said, but, uh, but not as far as um, the Foreign Office is concerned. It seems like an interloper that um, just causes endless trouble for, um, for Britain and the West and the, and the rest of the world. That's the way that the Foreign Office still, even to this day, uh, considers the, um, the state of Israel. And um, it strikes me that uh, after such a long time, there's virtually nothing one can do about it. Um, this is true for conservative governments. Boris Johnson, who is tremendously pro-Israel, um, and many of his uh, ministers, Priti Patel, for example, you know, these are these are essentially uh, well, Priti's a Zionist, you know. And, and yet it still doesn't get through to the uh, upper reaches of the civil service, especially in the, in the foreign office. So it's just there um, like some appalling incubus and I don't know what can be done about it. So um, you have to sort of 
scratch your head and wonder what what rewards exactly Britain has reaped by its effort to have better relations with Israel's enemies than uh, than with than with Israel uh, uh, itself. But you did indicate that there is um, a change, at least in 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 this in this government. Is there any hope for that change to be sustained, or is this government so unpopular that it's somewhat Zionist sympathies would would just fall into you know the the the, the what, another reason to dislike the current government? Well. I'm not um, as convinced as everybody else seems to be that this government is quite so unpopular, frankly. Um, you know, uh, the New York Times in particular has had a, you, you mentioned earlier, a very nice quote about the New York Times about one of my books. And uh, so therefore, um, which needless to say is, is pretty much the only thing I agree with the New York Times about. Um, what it's said recently about Britain, it seems to have this extraordinary anglophobia at the moment. And largely, I think this is because it makes the complete mistake of equating um, Boris Johnson with Donald Trump. You know, apart from their hair, um, I don't think that they have that much in common, frankly. Um, you know, uh, there are any number of ideological differences between them, but the New York Times has got this idea that they're the same person and therefore it endlessly um, attacks the, uh, the Johnson government. I think this is wildly overblown. Look, every midterm government has unpopular moments. These, um, these local elections, which the New York Times has made out to be an absolute catastrophe for, for Boris, actually he did less badly than he was expected to by most political commentators. And there are some uh, seats, especially in the Midlands and the North of England where he won um, from Labour. So, you know, it's not as bad as it's made out. Um, that said, Yes, uh, the, um, the, the pro-Israel um, stance of the Conservative Party, well, ever since Margaret Thatcher, in fact, you know, I mean, this isn't just true of, of Boris, it was, it was true of, in Margaret Thatcher's day as well, um, but not sadly in, in between terribly much, um, has, uh, is, it is something that's used against the, um, against the Conservatives. And I'm afraid, again, a bit like with Israeli, that in the end, it just comes down to to sheer politics. There are, um, I, I'm not sure the exact number, but it's something like 10 times more Muslim voters in the British electorate than there are Jewish voters. And as a result, the Labour Party has very much reckoned that it will um, skew uh, that way. Of the 11 Labour MPs who are Muslims, I'm afraid no fewer than 10 of them are influenced in some way or another by the Islamists. So, you know, there, yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a, it's an extraordinary, um, it's an extraordinary uh, political fact, but a, and a very unpleasant one. But you know, if it, you just come down to sephology, it makes more sense for a British politician essentially to uh, to suck up to his Muslim constituents than than his Jewish ones. And that also, needless to say, has a political effect, but luckily not one that so far has managed to, um, uh, to infiltrate Conservative Party to any degree. Let, let me ask you, Andrew, and by the way, I should, I should just pause here and say to those of you who are listening in, as, as questions, um, as, as things Andrew says inspire uh, questions uh, or comments, please add them in the chat function at the, at the bottom of the Zoom or in, or in the Q&A function. And I hope to get to them at the, uh, in the second half of our conversation. 
I want to ask you about the Labour Party because obviously it's just come through this uh, uh, this period in which um, the brand name of the Labour Party increasingly became associated with not just virulent anti-Zionism but um, outright anti-Semitism. But this also has historic precedents. When Israel uh, came into being, there was a Labour government in um, uh, in 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 Britain. In the United States, obviously the similarities between the Democratic Party and the Labour government aren't uh, uh, aren't exact. But the left of center government in the United States, Harry Truman's administration, instantly recognized Israel. Um, Truman took great pride in being, uh, as he put it, Cyrus to the Jews and returning them to their uh, to their homeland. This was not the case with uh, the government of uh, Attlee. Um, and just help us understand what the mindset was of the Attlee government in 47 and 48, and why there has been this persistent, although I don't think uniform, Gordon Brown calls himself pro-Israel, uh, Tony Blair thought of himself as pro-Israel, but still a kind of really uniform labor anti-Zionism from the earliest days of Israel right until the Corbyn, the Corbyn era. Yes. Um... Well, of course, you're right. In fact, only last week I was in the Harry Truman Library in, uh, in Kansas City, a, a really um, enjoyable trip there. And I saw the, um, the actual piece of paper that, uh, uh, with Truman's signature, recognizing the state of Israel 11 minutes after its foundation in, uh, in May 1948. So, um, so you're right about that. By total contrast, the um, Labour government of Clement Attlee and especially its foreign secretary, Ernest Bevin, were, um, were so negative actually about Israel that in December 1948, they um, warned Israel that if uh, Israel didn't take its troops out of the Negev desert, that uh, Britain might well declare war um, on the side of the Egyptians. Obviously it took uh, eight years before they realized that they'd chosen precisely the wrong side. And in the Suez crisis, you know, they, they uh, uh, the the next government um, swapped sides. That was that was back in conservative hands with England. It was back in it was it was Anthony Eden, of course, by then exactly. But um, but Anthony Eden until 1956 was pretty anti-Semitic. When you read the diaries of Evelyn Shukra, his uh, um, his private secretary, you 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 can't get away from that. Um, then he completely changed his mind at the time of uh, of the Suez Crisis, which of course was one of the great crises of his life and his premiership. Um, but uh, the Labour government, again, because it, it saw Israel as a, um, as a, not just a, a um, um, destructive um, thing in the Middle East, a phenomenon in the Middle East, but also a, a long-term dangerous one to its, uh, its own, Britain's own position there. Um, it wasn't really until we started to bring um, troops out of the east of Suez uh, in 1966 that we were able to um, recognize that Israel posed no danger at all, no threat at all to, to what had, was then no longer the British Empire. Um, and, uh, and we were able to, um, at least the Conservatives, were able to look at it in a much more positive light. Unfortunately, this didn't really happen with Labour. And look, I'm a Conservative myself, so I don't want to just use this opportunity to bash Labour. Um, and there are some, a lot of very good things that, um, that um, Sir Keir Starmer, the new Labour leader, has done to, um, 
uh, to root out anti-Semitism. Firstly, of course, he's actually thrown um, Jeremy Corbyn out of the party. What he should have done, of course, is to also throw several other Corbynites out of the party as well. So you do still get a lot of, um, of Corbynites within the Labour Party causing trouble. Um, but on the uh, Jewish issue, on the anti-Semitism issue, um, they are, the, the Corbynites are very much in the retreat. And Sakir Starmer, who is a decent man and in no sense an anti-Semite, um, has done a very good job. Um, the question is whether or not he's going to survive. Um, he's got his own Partygate scandal going on at the moment. He has not cut through enormously, especially in those local elections. He's still, the Labour Party is still at only 35% um, when it comes to people polling. And, uh, and so the battle is far from over within the Labour Party. You know, it could be that you get a Corbynite revival, especially in the constituency level, um, that means that this, this uh, Frankenstein returns from the dead, as it were. So I want to touch on now your, your essay, because I, it really was fascinating to me. And Britain finds itself at a kind of a peculiar moment uh, in its history. It is at last out of the uh, European Union. It has not managed, at least in terms of trade relations, to hammer down, to, to uh, uh, to hammer out a trade agreement, a free trade agreement with the United States, which I know is an uh, aspiration for, uh, for Johnson. Um, outside of the European Union, it has um, more independence, uh, more, uh, more leeway. Uh, but on the other hand, you might also argue more, more risk. So the, the title of your piece is what Britain can, can learn from, from Israel. What is it that Britain has not been doing for the past 50 years that Israel has and that Britain ought to learn again to do? Um, well, before I answer that, can I just um, say that there's one area that you, uh, that you touched on there, which I think is tremendously important yeah. that I think that your viewers might be interested in, which of course is the foreign policy aspect of Brexit, it very much strikes me that one of the reasons, um, beyond the moral and obvious uh, um, strategic ones, that Boris Johnson was the first Western leader to come out in support of Zelensky, uh, not just verbally, but in terms of actually sending arms. And um, in terms of population, uh, we have given more arms and more useful arms than any other country apart from America. So. Uh, there's a, um, I think one of the reasons for that was Brexit, was because uh, Johnson very much wanted to be able to show that a post-Brexit Britain was able to take firm um, and at that stage independent stances uh, that are removed from the, from the French and German stances, which only very much caught up with the pro-Ukraine um, movement later. Yeah. So I think Brexit was very good as far as Ukraine was concerned. Um, to get on to your, um, your major point, what uh, Britain can learn, or at least what it hasn't learned from the last half, half century, I can sum it up in two words. Um, since Margaret Thatcher, at least, since the fall of Margaret Thatcher in November 1990, we haven't had the same kind of attitude as uh, Israel over the, two words, free market. Um, with regard to uh, technological innovation, uh, the kind of technological innovation that is happening in uh, in Israel with its extraordinary high-tech um, startups. You know, this is just 
something that um, that Britain is still um, tiptoeing behind. It's got its the the setup, especially at Cambridge um, in England, but it doesn't have that that essential prerequisite, which is a um, a, a feeling that that uh, competition and the free market and all the positive things that go with that are naturally in and of themselves a good thing. And you do find that with Israel, not across the board in Israel, obviously the political, there are political um, uh, strands of political thought that, that totally do not agree with that at all. But in Israel, you have had a prime minister in Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, who, who totally personifies that attitude in my view, and also a lot of other politicians who um, who believe it too. So this is something that I'm afraid we are we are um, miles behind. Um, well, there's another aspect which I want to ask you about, which is identity. Um, obviously, within Israel, there are uh, at least a half dozen, if not a dozen, sub identities. But there is a real sense of a, not just a Jewish, but a distinctly um, Israeli identity that is reinforced by common institutions, particularly a national service in, in, in uh, the military um, and uh, genuine uh, enemies. Britain used to have that very clear sense of identity along with a kind of a real martial prowess or, or, or uh, vigor. Uh, it has dissipated. Um, now, Brexit is arguably the first step in, in reversing that, but it doesn't seem to me that that's something that's so easily uh, recaptured. And I, my question is, are you optimistic that this sense of a distinctly British identity, a, a kind of a, a deep pride in the, in the differences that make Britain unique as opposed to you know, what simply makes it another European nation, whether that that sense of pride and identity can be is there is still there and can it be uh, um, recaptured and amplified? I think it is still there, absolutely. Um, I think that it's uh, it's undoubtedly under threat and has been for for a long time. Um, of course, in a sense, what um, I mean, Israel's had to pay an enormous price with your five major invasions of your of your country um, to uh, to solidify this sense of a uh, national. Um, in a, a national identity, which obviously Britain hasn't had. But when we do see conflict, a classic example, of course, being the Falklands War in 1982, there was an um, identifiable um, coming together of the nation, which I think uh, you also see in some other moments. The Olympics, for example, was another time when, when a good deal of national pride was shown. But it's um, so... Um, unwoke and, un and politically incorrect to show national pride under almost any other circumstance than sport. That uh, that the um, that there's a there's a problem with that. Um, I think that the kind of um, of national identity that uh, Israel has is something that Britain would do very well to try to um, to emulate. And this has, of course, got nothing to do with race in um, in Britain, which is one of the, uh, the major ways in which Britain has changed since the 1970s. You know, national identity is not involved at all with, uh, with racial um, identity. It's to do with so many other really important aspects of the way in which the British people respond to things. Um, and as you say, Brexit, I think, you know, uh, setting ourselves independent of, uh, 
of the um, European Union is an opportunity which I think the government should do everything to try to grasp in order to underline those areas of our national life that are separate and different. Um, not necessarily better or worse, by the way, but just, uh, just our own. So the, 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 the ism that we are discussing uh, is nationalism. And um, Israel has always had, I mean, it is uh, the, the, the quintessential, maybe the original nation state um, uh, that precedes every other nation state that, that I can think of in, in, the, in the fact that you, you, you map um, ethnic and even religious identity, uh, linguistic identity, cultural identity on political uh, identity, the nation and uh, the state. And nationalism has become probably the most contentious issue um, in 21st century politics, where a good segment of um, the public, particularly I think on the political left, simply conflates nationalism with a kind of racism, or at least a chauvinism. Um, now there's something to that. There are racist and chauvinist strains of, of, of nationalism, but it seems increasingly true as well that with the possible exception of the United States, which is sui generis in, 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 in many ways, most countries are based on a, on a nation state concept. And what is, what is it, the, first of all, that Britain needs to do to recapture a kind of a healthy sort of nationalism if it, if it doesn't have it? And how do you advocate for this? How can you, what lessons does Israel offer to Britain that you think are, 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 are useful in thinking about the construction of, of a nationalistic character that doesn't fall prey to various sorts of bigotries? Well, of course, you're, you're absolutely right uh, with regard to this, uh, this word nationalism. I mean, the, the, the word national was in the Nazi party's um, official title after all. And uh, so it obviously does have a uh, sort of Caliban style um, attitude to it. I therefore um, tend to try to avoid um, the term nationalism because I think it has become uh, degraded and, um, and use instead patriotism. Um, which doesn't imply, it just implies a love for one's own country, doesn't imply any kind of um, aggression or, or negative attitudes towards any other countries um, at all. And I think in terms, to, in terms of, um, of uh, Britain learning from Israel, there's an enormous amount that one can um, learn from with regard to patriotism. Your country is tremendously patriotic. When I say your country, I mean Israel. I know you're an American Brit, but you're essentially, uh, it's, it's so much your country as well. Um, Israel is a patriotic uh, country, and it's one that therefore, I think, uh, can, can teach Britain quite a lot. Um, I think one of the things that you do do, which I think is, is important with regard to patriotism, is, um, uh, it's, is you extremely tough on uh, on illegal immigration and this is a problem we've got in England at the moment with some 60,000 people a year projected to be crossing the English Channel over um, in, in, in some danger and sometimes these these small boats do sink you know with tragic consequences and uh, and what the Johnson government has um, 
has said, proposed to do, is to actually take the illegal immigrants. And of course, we have a huge numbers of legal immigrants that nobody has any problem with whatsoever. And indeed, we're inviting tens of thousands of uh, uh, Ukrainians over to, uh, to Britain as well. Um, but with regard to the illegal ones, the people who were being trafficked, essentially, um, people smugglers who are making vast fortunes out of uh, the misery of others, um, uh, we're actually taking pretty tough action in the, um, in the Conservative government over that. And I think that's a classic example of where you, a government can act patriotically, i.e. in the nation's best interests, but not nationalistically or chauvinistically, um, in, um, in you know, opposing any other nation's interests. And there are lots of other examples. You know, you, um, in Israel, you have a, and as I say, part of this is because of your continued, um, the continued threat that you get from your, uh, from your neighbors occasionally, um, on a regular basis, in fact, which of course we, we don't have. We might not get on terribly well with the, with the French terribly much, um, but we're not in any, uh, fear that they might invade us. Um, but let me touch on that a little further. Obviously, there's the question of illegal immigration, which is a separate one. But there's also the question of legal immigration and the distinctly polyglot identity. I mean, whenever I'm, I'm in London, it really feels like it's not a part of England, but it's, a, it's an entity unto uh, uh, itself. Uh, multi-ethnic, polyglot, uh, uh, genuinely a, uh, um, a world city. And obviously something to be immensely proud of after New York, really the financial capital of the world, certainly the most important financial hub in Europe, the place where uh, I think most immigrants would like to go uh, if, uh, uh, if they can. How does, talk a little bit more about how effectively you can create a patriotic Britain um, in a polyglot society like that. And, and I'd be interested also in the, in the educational aspect. You know, when Americans, um, my wife's an immigrant to the, to, to, to the United States, and in a sense, when she took the oath of allegiance and became a citizen, uh, George Washington became her president. Uh, you know, this, this entire history here that was that was, you know, not hers until she was, you know, in middle age, suddenly becomes hers. It's very much a part of, uh, of uh, American identity. In Israel, even if you're an Argentinian Jew or, or, or from, you know, Polish or Canadian or whatever, that Jewish heritage binds you to, you know, distant uh, Abrahamic uh, uh, ancestors. Is that possible in, in Britain today? Does, an, does a recent immigrant from, let's say, Ukraine uh, arrive in Britain and look at the statue of Churchill outside of Parliament or Disraeli or Gladstone or whoever and say, these are now my prime ministers? Does it work quite the same way? Um, well, first of all, I think it's very important not to mistake London for England, and certainly not London for the whole of the United Kingdom. London is a sui generis um, city, as you say, it's a tremendously cosmopolitan city. We're very um, lucky with our, with our, you know, restaurants from all over the world, so on. Um, but it's not, um, it's not the whole country. Actually, you see this a bit in these local elections that I 
I've mentioned a couple of times, uh, London was almost a total clean sweep for Labour, um, even when um, Boris was doing well, as I say, in, in some seats in the, uh, in the Midlands and the North. So, so that's the first thing, you know, we, we, um, the, the capital is, uh, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's something like one third of the people, uh, or is it 40% of the people who live in London were not born in Britain, mm -hmm. um, which is a, a, you know, it's, it's unusual for, um, for, for Britain and certainly unusual for any other country. But um, I'm glad you mentioned uh, your wife and George Washington, because, of course, this, the, the whole history side of things, I'm not just saying this as an historian, I think I would say this even if I were not one, um, is a tremendously important one. And I noticed that uh, the students of George Washington University uh, in Washington, D.C., according to the Washington Post, um, uh, want to change the name of the university because they're so embarrassed about having a slave owner as a, uh, and a founding father as, their, um, as the name of their university. By the way, this was supported, I think, by the Washington Post. I'm wondering what the Washington Post is going to yes. call itself um, after uh, if, if the name Washington is going to be, is going to be expunged from American uh, history. Or indeed, what the um, District of Columbia are going to do. This is the same Washington Post, I have to add in passing, uh, that is busy editorializing about the evils of having Elon Musk, an unaccountable billionaire, uh, take over a media <laughs> platform like Twitter. I'm just, I'm just putting that out there. Remind me who owns the Washington Post. I can't remember. Uh, that's that's, that's, that, that, that's <laughs> what had, had, had me scratching my head. Yeah. Now, well, <laughs> now, just to just to continue, you know, I think that this um, this uh, the the history side of the you know what what we're forced to call the culture wars now, you know, we didn't start them, we didn't pick them, we didn't want them, but you know they have been forced upon us. Um, and when one sees the statue of Jefferson being taken down in New York, or the repeated attacks on the statue of um, Churchill, not just in the Black Lives Matter. Um, demonstration, but in other demonstrations as well, you do recognize, I hope, that there is a, a real full-scale um, attack on, uh, on national identity on both sides of the Atlantic, because people like Washington and Churchill are essential to understanding the nature of the, of the, of the countries. And um, so uh, I've just been reading Douglas Murray's excellent book on, um, on the, the war on the West, and I think the points he's making about the centrality of, of history and history teaching and uh, statues and so on um, is a very valid one, even though, of course, the left like to um, pretend whenever they lose uh, a battle over a statue that um, it's, all, it's all sort of um, created by the right. It simply isn't. You know, we wouldn't be battling over statues if uh, we were left to ourselves because, uh, because people um, like them. They're part of the of the natural you know, furniture of the nation. You mentioned uh, George Washington University, and that brings to mind the question of pedagogy and national identity. And here in the United States, the next issue of Sapir after our current issue on Zionism is gonna be devoted to the question of education. It has become an intensely political uh, question because uh, in our grade schools, high schools, and at colleges, the very nature of our national identity as Americans, and the question of the intrinsic or 
uh, at least overall unbalanced goodness of the American political enterprise is being very hotly contested. And my sense is that there is um, an analogous uh, uh, culture war taking place uh, in, in Great Britain. Could you talk a little bit about that? And do you feel, I mean, here in the United States, at least among my circle of friends, there's intense pessimism about whether those of us who basically think that the United States is uh, an exceptional and wonderful uh, country that has done far more good than harm in the world, that we are um, losing the commanding heights of, uh, of the culture. Is that true as well in, in uh, Britain or, or how is it playing out? I, I, I think you're right. There is a tremendous pessimism. However, I'm not sure it's, it's necessarily justified, actually, because um, there's a great way that, um, that some uh, councils in this country have actually um, been able to outmaneuver the, um, uh, the whole putting down the statues uh, movement, which is actually to give local people a voice. Um, every time, every time there is an actual referendum, a local referendum, on whether a statue should be pulled down of, um, I know, Sir Francis Drake or Admiral Nelson or somebody in some town. Um, and uh, when you see also people being allowed to vote on whether or not their street name should continue to be called Imperial Way or, you know, Colonial Avenue or something, slightly exaggerating those, uh, those terms, but Rep Cecil Rhodes, for example. Yeah. Um, Every time, I've, no, I've uh, noticed that the Rhodes Scholarship has, has no, not, <laughs> yes, changed exactly. its name. No, no, no. Or have you also noticed how people are willing to take the vast amounts of money they get from their Rhodes uh, Scholarship whilst at the same time attacking the name Rhodes? That's right. But, um, uh, but, but uh, as I say, the way to, to counter this is actually to use democracy, to use this amazing idea that America um, has, uh, has ex ex expanded so much and also uh, um, uh, developed so much and exported to so much of the world. Um, you know, if, if you use that uh, homegrown concept of yours, um, democracy- It's yours too, by the way. And apply it, employ it, sorry, apply it to um, to your own selves in, in local elections. I think you'll find that uh, local decisions about pulling down statues, I think you'll find that, um, as we have done in, uh, in England, in all sorts of uh, councils across the country, that actually local people don't like it. They, they, they want to live on the same street that they grew up in and called the name the same thing. They want to have connections to their parents and grandparents. They also don't feel the kind of, um, of uh, self-hating guilt about Imperial um, Britain that, uh, that they're supposed to, because Black Lives Matter tell them to. Uh, and they remember actually their grandfathers as having um, done rather good things for the rest of the world and, and to have been pretty uh, altruistic. So in fact, you know, I think that uh, the, the, the key to, uh, to fighting these cultural wars and perhaps winning them is to unleash that extraordinary idea of democracy that America's done, done so much to promote. So that's, that's actually, I think, an important and useful proposal. I don't think I've seen it mentioned anywhere in our own domestic debates about uh, naming and statues. It has almost always been 
left to the votes of city councils or individual mayors as, as executive or legislative actions rather than refer, uh, referenda, which I suspect will change things a great deal. I'm going because we have uh, less than 20 minutes to go in our conversation to turn it over to some of the questions from, uh, our, from our audience. So let me uh, start with uh, Julian Cooper, who asks you, Andrew, can you touch upon how we have arrived at a point uh, whereby Zionism is now conflated with being right-wing in a pejorative sense? It was initially arguably very much a left-wing invention or at the very least fully supported by the left, the Manchester Guardian being uh, one one example. Any any comment to, to Mr. Cooper? Yes, I think it was, I think it happened in 1967, or at least it started in 1967, um, when people started to see the um, Palestinians as being the, the downtrodden colonial people um, and, uh, and being oppressed, blah, blah, blah. You know, you can fill in the rest of it, frankly. Also, of course, by that stage, 25 years had uh, passed, or at least 20 plus years had passed since the Holocaust. And, uh, and so memories, and sad to say, were starting to, uh, to dim. Um, and you had this very much this sense that the left wanted to be on the side of um, the uh, underdog. And the, and the Jews were no longer seen in, in Palestine, at least, as the underdog after 1967 because of their tremendous uh, victory in that war. So I think it's, um, it's part of the left's um, um, self uh, sense of, it, of itself, self-identification um, with, uh, with the Palestinian cause that, that has caused all the trouble. When it actually, when you look into it and you look into the way, of course, that Arab Israelis have, um, have uh, lived since 1948, you recognize that uh, in fact, Zionism has been tremendously good for the well-being of, um, of the people of that region. Um, all you get is a complete um, blank face or you get anger or you get BDS or so on. So, um, so this is the mountain that, um, that Zionists have to climb in this country. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's also the fact I should add that um, after 1967, the Soviet Union through the weight not only of its uh, military and diplomatic muscle, but also its propaganda arms into advancing the idea that Zionism is racism and the influence of, of, of that, um, I think is, is underappreciated in terms of shaping ideological debates in the late Cold War, which really have just continued uh, right through to uh, uh, the present. I have, a, I have a question from uh, Mr. Scott Lezensky. Um, I'd like to ask you, Mr. Roberts, about the office of the chief rabbi and Ephraim Mervis. There is typically a focus here in North America on his extraordinary intervention in your last election, yet less attention is given to his extensive bridge building with UK Muslims extending inroads Rabbi Sachs made. Can other Jewish communities or even Israel learn from the UK Jewish community and its leaders like Mervis how to better navigate cross-community ties. Of course, here in the United States, we do not have a, uh, a chief rabbi, but it's, it's, it's an interesting feature of, of English-Jewish life. Well, that's, that was going to be the first point that I, I made, you know, uh, I, I was going to make. It's that uh, the actual existence of the chief rabbi, the office of the chief rabbi, is in itself 
um, a unusual um, thing and I think a very positive thing. I knew uh, Jonathan Sachs very well. He went to my old college in Cambridge and uh, we won the uh, Bradley Prize in the same day and uh, he was a, a tremendous, charming, intelligent, learned, um, articulate, eloquent, fine man and uh, and um, I think that yes, he did start this. But the trouble is, what we don't um, uh, don't seem to um, recall is quite how many slaps in the face he got um, from uh, not just from from Islamists, you know, but from people who uh, who misinterpreted his um, his uh, overtures. And um, and so, I, I, of course, one must be in favour of these uh, of these um, very fine and, and morally upstanding attempts to uh, appeal across the aisle to, um, uh, to Muslim sentiment. And there are huge numbers of Muslims who are more than willing to, to grasp an open hand if it's offered. But ultimately, I, um, I, I'm not so, uh, so optimistic as I was actually about the cultural wars earlier. Um, I think that, uh, that you get a level of anti-Semitism uh, in the United Kingdom, which uh, has not been going down. And in some cases, as we see from the um, Community Security Trust, gone up. Um, and, uh, and for all the, the great good that the chief rabbi um, does and wants to do, um, he's, he's like a, um, a sort of cork floating on the sea, in my view. A question from Saul Israf. Um... He says we could answer together, but I really don't know the answer to this, so I'm going to leave it to you. Please comment <laughs> on why there seem to be few Jews in the civil service, and particularly in the foreign office, the foreign office being the tip-off that he's referring to Britain, not the United States. I, 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 I'm not sure that's true. Um, I'd like to see the statistics for that. Um, I think that uh, most of the feeders, for certainly for both of those two institutions, which are Oxford and Cambridge um, tend not to be underrepresented um, as far as Jews are concerned. Um, so, uh, so I'm not going to go into it because I'm I'm not absolutely certain it's true. I'd like to see the stats first. And here in the United States, the State Department for many years was seen as a bastion of anti-Israel sentiment. George Marshall, as Secretary of State to Harry Truman was the most prominent opponent of US recognition of uh, Israel. And there's a great a set to between him and Clark Clifford, then the young aide to Harry Truman, who later became Secretary of Defense to uh, Lyndon, uh, Lyndon Johnson. Clifford, the young lawyer from Missouri, who uh, uh, made the case for the state of Israel. And uh, uh, Marshall, obviously, uh, someone you know well through your study of the Second World War, who, who made the case against it. But after, in the last 30 or 40 years, the State Department is, is certainly well populated by, by talented Jewish uh, diplomats, ambassadors, uh, secretaries, and so on. Even so, it has generally remained or seen as somewhat more hostile to Israel, or at least on the dovish side of the debates, than other agencies of, uh, of the US government. If there's, there may be someone 
watching us who wants to contest that in which case they should they should they should say something to that effect but that that's always been my impression that foggy bottom was never a, a particularly happy place for for uh israel advocates um zachary Narrett asks how seriously do you consider the threat of anti-israel activism on the university campus and the spread of such vitriol and hatred i'm thinking of the scenes of um the Israeli ambassador to Great Britain having to be rushed out of the London School of uh, Economics in the face of potentially violent protest. Nothing potentially about it. It was a very violent process. Uh, somebody threw half a brick at the back of her car at the LSE. Um, it, uh, it bounced off, of course, because the Israeli ambassador's car is going to have slightly stronger glass yeah. than, uh, than, than most people's, but nonetheless, um, there was, there was, it was a violent protest. And I'm afraid that you see this um, again and again. The reason that you don't actually see it as much as, um, as there could be is because the universities are scared of inviting the Israeli ambassador and they're scared of her accepting and, uh, and the results that are going to come from it. So I'm afraid there's a horrible sort of self-censorship that takes place, which in a sense, of course, means that the Islamists have won. Um, and, uh, and when a Jewish society invites the ambassador to come and speak, um, and, uh, and either she doesn't because, because the police don't want her to, or because the university authorities um, uh, stop it from happening, um, or the Jewish society itself doesn't want to uh, extend the invitation because they know all the trouble that's going to, uh, going to come from it, um, not least from Islamists who are other undergraduates. Uh, I, you effectively have a stifling of, of free speech and, um, and the government's doing something about that. I'm pleased to say in this country, there is a universities bill that is going through parliament that is designed to, um, to prevent all this um, breaking down of, of free speech. But for me, the answer is so obvious and so straightforward that I simply can't understand why universities haven't taken it? Well, I can, because they're such cowards. If you're looking for cowards in society, you look for uh, university authorities. You look for the deans and the presidents of the colleges. They are just spineless when it comes to free speech. Um, but so what they should do, of course, is to send down anyone from a Islamist organization, a Palestinian um, solidarity campaign organizing group who um, engages in any viciousness or aggression or violence um, against, uh, against anyone. So you know, if you were able to have a bit tougher um, stance rather than, than sort of having an even-handed approach uh, and actually expelled people from the university so that they um, will then find it difficult to find a job because people will know that this has happened, then I think you will actually get an awful lot more um, free speech in our universities, but I see no prospect of that at all because of the totally lily-livered attitude that university authorities have towards this kind of thing. Um, I can say this as a graduate of the LSC, that the other factor is that it's just not a very good university, but let's <laughs> Well, speaking as a Cambridge graduate, I'm not going to pick you up on that, uh, Brett. <laughs> um, Andrew Neff asks uh, you would would enjoy some Churchill stories, but let, let's be a little, let's narrow uh, Andrew's question down. 
which is the, the question of Churchill and Zionism, because Churchill was, in fact, I believe, a committed uh, Zionist from, uh, from long before the creation of the state of uh, Israel. And yet, and yet, during the Second World War, he presided over policies that, in, in, in retrospect, were not very friendly to the interests of the Jews in terms of uh, preventing uh, immigration uh, to Jewish immigration uh, to Palestine. Could you say a few words about uh, Churchill's position vis-a-vis the Zionist question, particularly when he was in power? Yes, um, he was a Zionist. He was a, a friend of the Jews. He, um, uh, unlike many upper class people of his generation, his uh, father liked Jews. They went on holiday together. They um, his father uh, Randolph. His father, Lord Randolph Churchill, was friendly with with Jews, and and Churchill would, in growing up, go on holiday with uh, with Jews, which was um, not that common in uh, in the British upper classes, um, conservative upper classes at the time. He um, was, of course, a supporter of the Balfour Declaration. Uh, he made speeches for the Jews. He sat for two Jewish constituencies in his life, or at least predominantly Jewish constituencies in his life. Um, and he had personal friends who were Jewish. And that is unusual for somebody of his background at that, at that time. Um, when he, uh, during the Second World War, he support, oh, and before the Second World War, of course, his, his uh, philo-Semitism, was one of the reasons that he recognized Hitler and the Nazis so early on for what they really were. And, uh, and therefore- he didn't, he didn't have a sneaking sympathy for Hitler's- Precisely. Anti-Semitism. Exactly. There was none of that at all in his makeup, uh, which there was, I'm afraid, in, uh, in lots of other people in the Conservative Party at that time. And so it gave him this early warning system for, uh, for what Hitler and the Nazis were really like. Um, during the war, he supported the creation of the Jewish Brigade against endless problems with the uh, Foreign Office. He told Anthony Eden that he wanted the um, camps to be, uh, the concentration camps to be bombed, and he said, invoke me if necessary. But I'm afraid by that stage of the war, the RAF were doing nighttime raids. It was very much up to the United States to do the daylight raids, which are the only kind of precision raids that you could have against. Uh, against both the railways taking Jews from Hungary to, uh, to Auschwitz and also the actual camps themselves. And uh, so it's one of the great tragedies of the, of, the, of the 20th century that John McCloy and other decision makers in the uh, American military and, uh, and administration did not prioritize the, um, the bombing of the camps in the way that, um, that only they could. And I'm afraid Anthony Eden also, um, um, he, uh, he dragged his feet on this too. So um, it can't be blamed on Churchill though. He wasn't a dictator in Britain. If he came up against the combined opposition as he very often did, especially over the question of immigration to Israel um, during the war of the united voice against him in the cabinet, he was not able to get his policy across. So. Uh, I don't think that that can be blamed on, on Churchill. I do go into this in some detail in my, in my book, my biography of uh, Churchill, but um, certainly when um, the, uh, in his, in his post-war um, government and also in his retirement at the time of Suez and, and, and other times, uh, he was uh, personally hugely supportive of the state of Israel.